Um, so let me pray for Bruna. She's going to share, continue our series here on unfolding a great commission. And in particular, I'm looking at one of the distinctives of the early church, the breaking of bread. So um, let me pray for her before she um, shares and opens the word. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing amongst us already this morning. Just continue to speak to us. Continue to speak to us. God, we've been aware of the brokenness of your heart for the world. And Lord, as we think about the brokenness of your body, God, and what that means and the healing that comes in that for the nations, God, we pray that we become aware of that even as Bruna shares with us. Give her grace. So God, help from your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to confess, I looked across in worship and the lectern was completely empty and I thought, oh Jesus, I'm really relying on you this morning because there's no notes there. <laughs> Thankfully, we located them, so it was okay. <laughs> um, bear with me this morning as well because there could be a few coughing and spluttering outbreaks, but um, just learn not to come near me at the end, okay? So um, over the past few weeks, we have begun to delve into the origins of the early church and we've been examining the blueprint that Jesus left for the apostles on how to best architect this eclectic group of people that encountered and then followed Jesus. The great commission that he left for the early church was to go and to make disciples of all nations. And, and that was essentially the blueprint on which the body of Christ would first of all become established and then would spring forth from. And it's just as significant for us now as it was 2000 years ago. And so to place this all in context again, for those of you who have maybe just joined us this morning, Jesus had died and he rose again. And before his ascension, he left some instructions for his disciples and assured them that the Holy Spirit, the helper, would come um, because obviously none of this could happen without his help. So the followers of Jesus began meeting together. And during one particular meeting in the upper room, the Holy Spirit really arrived and <clears throat> falling on the believers in the upper room. And from that point on, the church just completely exploded. Very quickly, their numbers multiplied. And almost immediately, this group of people who had been run over in the best possible way by the Holy Spirit were thrust into the most epic, life-challenging, life-changing, and even life-threatening course. Let's not forget what it cost to be a follower of Jesus at that time and what many of them had to leave behind for the sake of the gospel. So, uh, I've never done this before, so let's see how this goes. Ah, there we go. Um, and they did what Jesus instructed them to do. So if we look at Acts 2, 42 to 47, it says, The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, that bit's key, and a prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many, miracle, many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Today, we wanted to focus specifically on the breaking of bread. Because, of course, we know that the act of communion, the breaking of bread, is, is commonly in church when we remember the death of Jesus on the cross. His body was broken and his blood was shed. And by taking the broken bread and drinking the cup, we remind ourselves of how much we need him. Of how deep his love goes for us 
of how unattainable all of this is without his help. Coming around the table with um, remembering Jesus' death is a static place around which we can refocus our gaze on what he gave up for us. The cross was decided before the foundation of the world and coming around the table is testimony to Christ's death on our behalf. It's a means by which we're all challenged to examine our own spiritual lives. But hopefully this morning you'll realize that it's actually so much more than that, that we'll step actually, while this is so important, so important, but we're actually going to step beyond that and see what else he meant. So in knowing all of that, I wanted to place this all in the wider context of God's unfolding story of redemption. So we're going to do a wee bit of jumping about the Bible, if that's okay with you. Well, it has to be okay with you because I'm the one with the mic. So... (laughs) If we, uh, there we go. You know, nobody really knows what it was like. We can guess by Jewish culture what it kind of looked like. And I I like this picture best, so that's why I put it in there. But Jesus' last meal was the Passover. It was a full meal, a communal event in the Jewish calendar. Family would have come from far and wide to gather together to celebrate Passover, which we know, of course, was when the Israelites were released from captivity in Egypt. They experienced the mercy of Yahweh, leading them from slavery into their freedom. And what Jesus so cleverly does here is that he contrasts the spiritual significance of the Passover with what was just about to be spiritually conquered for all of humanity. The Last Supper is a really beautiful New Testament image of the Passover, the eve of liberation from slavery. And for us, that means liberation from the slavery of sin. There are some main points that I hope to draw out today that um, were very relevant for the early church, but equally they are as relevant for us today. So when we break bread, um, when we come around the table, we become aware that Jesus wants... Johnny, I'm pointing at you. There we go. Oh. <laughs> Jesus wants us to serve. <laughs> John's account of the Last Supper tells us that um, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved him to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, why why are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. 
You see, Jesus knew that God had put all things under his power, which enabled him to be free from the judgment of other people to just step into the service that he needed to do. Before they began their meal, John's gospel tells us that Jesus does something that was so countercultural at that time that the disciples were in this place of almost kind of feeling a wee bit of disgust with Jesus. He got up from the table, he removed his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. He took on the identity and the role of a slave by washing the feet of his disciples. Because in the culture at that time, foot washing was considered so degrading that a master couldn't require required of their Jewish slaves. We know um, the climate in that country, they would have worn sandals, it was very hot and du dusty. Their feet were literally the dirtiest part of their body. And even the act of foot washing, it caused the person to kind of bow down like a subordinate to the person whose feet they were washing. And this was just such a significant, beautiful moment in the life of Jesus because society told Jewish people to, to place themselves at the social top of the rung or strive to get to that place because so much of their identity had been wrapped up in oppression by foreign rulers throughout their history. And there was almost this internal voice that rose up in their psyche to get themselves as high in the pecking order as they could. I don't know if anybody here has, has had this happen to them where they've had their feet washed before. Um, it is... It's one of the most humbling things that you will ever have happen to you. Um, it's extremely difficult when it's happening to keep your emotions in check. It, it, it's, it's, it is such a humbling thing to have happen. And um, I can see and I can identify with Peter here why he found it very difficult to let Jesus do that for him. But Jesus knew better. And he was a leader who essentially had socially reached the top because he was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And he led this ragtag group of people. But he positioned himself at the bottom of the social rung by washing his own disciples' feet. I, I can't honestly stress enough how radical this was. His disciples would have been totally confounded, nearly horrified by, <coughs> by what Jesus was doing. Because this was not the way of the messianic king. They expected this messianic king that they were waiting for to rule into town, showing uh, the strength of power and completely wipe the Romans out. But Jesus, again, knew better. He demonstrated the strength of his love by serving. And reputation didn't really mean very much to him either. His priorities at this time were his character and the example that he left over how he was perceived by others. He just didn't really give two hoots, to use a Northern Ireland <laughs> phrase. Jesus could rightly have expected to be served at the Last Supper, but he totally flew in the face of convention as he didn't want to receive as the guest and said he just rolled up his sleeves. He set his position aside and he, and he gave us the host. Max Lucado puts it this way. He can always put it so much more beautifully than us can do. Jesus meets you at the table. When the bread is broken, Christ breaks it. When the wine is poured, Christ pours it. And when your burdens are lifted, it's because the king in the apron has drawn near. And as I've thought about this and been preparing this, you know, I've honestly been so encouraged because I think our wee church is so good at this. We regularly see people giving themselves away for the sake of other people. And I just can't help but feel that that honors the heart of Jesus and that's how the church gets built. And the way of Jesus is to give ourselves away. That's his way. We must think of others better than ourselves. We must prefer one another. And it's when we are completely yielded to the Father's will to serve like this, no matter the cost, no matter the cost to our reputation, that that's then that we reflect the heart of Jesus in our everyday environments.
So when we break bread and we come around the table, we know that Jesus wants us to serve. But the second point that I wanted to bring out today is that Jesus wants us to access the presence of God. Very quickly, I want to take a wee minute and jump back to the Old Testament and explain the importance of meals in the Bible. As we journey through the Old Testament, it becomes so clear that meals were sort of central to their culture. And quite often, it was the place around which covenant was established. Covenant, as, as many of you will know, it's that agreement between two parties, kind of like a promise or a verbal agreement. Um, an example of this would be uh, Laban and his son-in-law Jacob parting ways. They established a covenant between each other. And we know the covenant that was established at the Passover as well between God and the Israelites. But there was something about eating together that built trust enough for covenant to become established. One of the practices that they actually used to do, and I'm so glad we've moved past this now, they used to actually put their hand under the other person's thigh, you know, rather than shaking hands. Um, I'm so thankful <laughs> that that's not something we do anymore. Um, but after the Passover feast, when the children of Israel were in the desert, we know that God gives them very specific instructions about how to build a tabernacle. And that's the tabernacle was the place where his presence would reside. And um, if we take a look at Exodus 25 here, just draw one verse out of a huge amount of detail about how God wanted the tabernacle to be built. But there was a table that was to be in his presence. And um, it says in verse 30 of chapter 25, to put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. So this special table for the bread of presence was constantly in the presence of God. So there were specific instructions about how the bread should be made that I'll not take time to go into this morning. You can read it if you want to, you know, if you have nothing else to do today and you go home and you want to read Exodus 25. But um, the bread of the presence is significant for us because it's only to be consumed by the priestly lineage, specifically Aaron's family, the Levites. Okay, they were the only ones who were allowed to eat it. This wasn't for ordinary people. The priests in the Old Testament again, as many of you know, were the only ones who could enter into the presence of the Lord. It wasn't available. The presence of the Lord wasn't available for everyday run-of-the-mill Israelites. And we would be counted as everyday run-of-the-mill Israelites. But I feel like this is a mirror image of the bread and the Last Supper. It was on the Lord's table, so to speak. And so Jesus, in offering the disciples the bread, he knew and they knew, because they would have been so well-schooled as young Jewish boys in these passages at the early stages, that they knew when he was doing this that he was inviting them into the lineage of the royal priesthood. He was letting them know that they had a new identity, that the presence of God was no longer this exclusive thing, but that it was available for everyone. And so on that, I wanted to go to First um, Peter <clears throat> First Peter 2.9, we probably know this verse very well. It's beautiful. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Can you see who wrote this? Peter. Peter, who deemed himself so completely unworthy to have Jesus wash his feet. Peter, who was nothing more than a fisherman and was never going to amount to anything more than that until he came into contact with Jesus, was invited into the lineage of the royal priesthood. 
That gave Peter this real-life revelation that this ordinary fisherman was now a part of the royal priesthood because of the bread and also because of the fact that Jesus' body was about to be broken for him. And please, if you take nothing else away from this morning, would you take this away? This is for us too. This is for us too. It's not just the 12 disciples in the early church. We know that on Good Friday, the curtain into the, temp into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, where God's presence lived, it was torn in two. This demonstrated not only that we had access in, but that his presence was breaking out. It could no longer be contained. There were no physical boundaries there on God's presence. And when Jesus' body was broken, the new covenant was established. Jesus' actions passed over our sin. He saw our sin. He sees our sin. He knows about it. But he took it from us to allow us to have access to the presence. So um, when we break bread and when we come around the table, we become aware that Jesus wants us to serve. He wants us to access the presence. But the third point that I wanted to bring out this morning is that Jesus wants us to prefer others. See, Jesus was not exclusive about who he had around the table. Culturally for him to share a meal with someone, what he was actually doing in those moments was initiating, inviting somebody into friendship. That's what it meant in that time to have a meal with someone. He was widely known, but then also regularly condemned for keeping company with the Dynanites. And that's why I sort of think what happened this morning was just such a beautiful kind of holy thing. Because I want you to take a look at this next passage in Luke, in Luke 19, 1 to 10. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. So this is Zacchaeus has climbed a tree because he heard Jesus has come into town. He was so short, he couldn't see Jesus over the crowd. So the only way he was going to get to see him was by climbing a tree. So Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down and at once welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. I actually had a wee giggle at this passage, you know, because <laughs> I think in our culture, inviting yourself to somebody's house for tea can kind of be a wee bit rude, can't it, you know? But Jesus, I kind of, I think, I like to think that he saw past Zacchaeus's reservations. Zacchaeus wasn't going to be the one to take the first step to invite Jesus to tea, okay? And he saw past what was going on in Zacchaeus's heart, and he sought the company of Zacchaeus out. Someone who was completely on the fringes, granted by his own choices because he decided to give up um, the allegiance of, the, of his Jewish people by going to work for the Romans, which was just put himself completely at enmity with them. But in dining with Zacchaeus, Jesus essentially associated himself with him. But also here, look at the reaction of the crowd. They began to mutter. There were probably a few eye rolls, weren't there? Probably a few tuts. And he said, They've got, he's gone to be a guest of a sinner. <clears throat> Jesus did not really care what the crowd thought. He was secure enough in knowing that God had given him all power. And he knew what it took to sometimes get those people here on the fringes in. Because the crowd would have written Zacchaeus off as being someone who was completely beyond redemption. There would have been no hope for Zacchaeus in the eyes of the crowd. Somebody who wasn't really worth the effort. But Jesus did not let that put him off loving Zacchaeus. He pushed that messy bit of Zacchaeus's character to the side to see essentially what was in his heart, to see the heart cry. And the time that Zacchaeus spent in the company of Jesus, eating a meal with him, coming around the table with him, being accepted and pulled up, 
cause this massive transformation in his heart that by the time they finished their meal, he had repented and, and uh, pledged to give back the money and more to everybody that he had taken from. Because you see, that's the power of the table. The Pharisees' agenda to wipe Jesus out based so much, was based so much on how much he challenged their religious stereotypes and identified himself with those who were rejected. We know that he identified with prostitutes and tax collectors and people caught in adultery. To dine with people like this at this time was to identify them. But here's what I really love about Jesus. I don't think he was identifying with their sin. I think what he was doing in that was giving them the opportunity to identify with his love and his acceptance. He was giving them a hand up to see themselves not as what they were, but more of what they could be. And they were drawn to invitation for redemption because this just flowed right out of the core of who Jesus was. Reputation was of no consequence to the early church either, really. They didn't really care what Jim down the road thought of who came in. Uh, or what songs they sang, and actually someone's actually said this this even, do you have banjos in your church? And he could say no, he could say no. <laughs> but they had this strong conviction that, of this blueprint that Jesus had left them, that they just didn't really care what other people thought. You know, they had a beautiful freedom from that. I remember Phil telling us this story in Lurgan a long time ago, um, <clears throat> but he was sitting down, he'd gone up the street for something, and he was sitting down beside this wee alcoholic man, and um, this, this wee lady came over to him and said, that's the problem with Emmanuel, you know, they take the people that nobody else wants. Actually, do you know what? That's actually really um, painful to hear that, that that's what people think church is, you know. Um, actually, really, it's a big compliment, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's a big compliment because Jesus wants those people. And if we don't get that, we've entirely missed the point. Phil was engaging with the same kind of people that Jesus engaged with. So in view of the commands of Jesus and the early church, then perhaps this is one of our solutions to seeing the kingdom break out. This is what it looks like in the everyday, messy reality of life, you know. Because here's the thing, Jesus does not want church to be this obscure, separate, hierarchical social club. What we need to observe and heed and put into action is the fact that Jesus always intended his body to be culturally relevant, to be an influence. Church in the very early stages, it didn't compromise on the truth, but boy, did they love and serve well. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could operate on these same principles, that we could be strong enough on our identity as the actual body of Christ, because that is what we are, that we could just permeate the culture enough to change the tone of what's going on out there? So practically speaking, in our own terms, within our own body, let's not let there be any room for jealousy. Let's not let there be room for misunderstanding or suspicion or gossip or criticism. Let's not be easily offended. I, I can tell you, hand on heart, nobody sets out to offend you. <laughs> Rather, or sorry, let's not... Let our insecurities be the lens through which we view others because these things only lead to division. But rather, let's view others through the lens of preference like Jesus did, calling out what God has put in them. So when we break bread and when we come around the table, Jesus wants us to serve. He wants us to access the presence of God. He wants us to prefer others. And the fourth point that I wanted to get on to today was... 
I'm really making friends with this thing this morning, aren't I? Yeah, okay. Jesus wants us to be one. N.T. Wright says, here we go, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what was or his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. You see, the bread was one to symbolize the body of Christ, the church, and Jesus prayed that his followers would be one just like he and the Father would, were one. Did you know that in the Bible there's in and around a hundred one another commands? Like when I read those, I kind of think you can't do that if you're on your own. You can't love one another. You can't serve one another if you're in isolation. In order to live out these one another commands, which are things we should do because Jesus told us to, we have to be in community. And that's that little phrase that we knock about here about being formed in a family, isn't it? We're only going to grow to be more like Jesus if we come together and be formed in the family. And the honor of coming around the table of your host is to grow relationally with them. We literally used to do this every Sunday. I have to tell you, I'm, you know, I love this place. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. But there's one wee tiny thing I miss about Lurgan, and it was tea and toast in between the two services. It was the highlight of the week for us, okay? <laughs> That's just the one wee thing I miss about Lurgan. Um, I don't think Jesus really minded that it was tea or coffee in the cups rather than wine. But, you know, something. in terms of fellowship, we actually really came together around the table and essentially we kind of broke bread. Look, I'm going to be honest here. Totally, at times, it was complete and utter carnage. You know, um, quite often, kids were tantruming over having marmalade on their toast when they want a chocolate spread. But you're supposed to be a mind reader when you're a parent, you know, and, and work out that they want a chocolate spread before you actually go and put marmalade on their toast. And one morning in particular, I remember one of our boys standing on the edge of one of the black sofas and literally face-planting the sofa, you know, with everybody, the tea and coffee everywhere. <laughs> but while it was crazy... It was really beautiful because it reminded us all, actually, that it wasn't just us who were in the trenches. Do you know what I mean? And uh, we're all kind of, our families were actually all kind of normal. You know, you saw somebody else's kid and you didn't feel so bad about your own. <laughs> and when I look back on that now, genuinely, I kind of think that that was a raw kind of koinonia. So koinonia is not just a word that I've made up. Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship, for sharing in common or having communion with. We shared baby wipes, okay? We traded, wait till you hear what happened this week's stories. <laughs> but something really beautiful happened in that. We took turns, man, in the corridors that our kids were t literally tearing up and down while the other mummies and daddies tried to have some kind of adult conversation. But we were kind of one together. It was community. And, and even in those kind of oh, moments, we sort of grew together. And it was, it was just, it was lovely. When I look back on that, it was lovely. And you, I kind of think that this kind of stuff happened in the early church as well. I don't know if they had marmalade or not, you know, but probably didn't have chocolate spread either. But can you see how that kind of normal life actually, do you know what, you're normal to, um, it would draw people in. So back to Acts 2 again. It says again that all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. So let's spend just a wee bit of time here now pulling this apart to examine the reality of how this was ruled out in the fledgling church that we read of in Acts. The first thing that I wanted to draw out is that the breaking of bread was right up there with teaching and prayer and fellowship. It was in the top four list of the outworking of the early church. It was extremely important. We can tend to put a lot of weight on the teaching and a lot of weight on prayer and some weight on fellowship, but actually the breaking of bread and coming around the table together was 
one of the things that, 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 that had to do to see the early church break out, you know, and <coughs> it was extremely important. And so if we look at that language, they had devoted themselves. The breaking of bread was not just this token thing that was slotted on to the end of the church service because you have to do it, you know, a couple of times a year just to remember Jesus, you know. What did it mean that, that when Luke says that they were devoted? Devotion means love, loyalty, enthusiasm for an activity, faithfulness, steadfastness, and commitment. This wasn't, let's just wake up on Sunday morning and see if we feel like going to church. That's not what this was. This was completely unwavering. They were deeply connected to God, and as a result, they were deeply connected to one another. They witnessed miracles and signs and wonders. It was a partnership in the gospel, and they were of one mind and one accord, and it was so powerful. There was this bone-deep heart and soul connection between them. Their lives were fully committed and centered around the apostles' teaching, prayer, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. And so what did it actually look like? The early church initially met in the temple courts, which was their church essentially. There were two gatherings, a crowd gathered in the temple, and then they separated into homes, which would have been a lot more intimate when you get to know people. At this point, they still identified themselves as Jewish, and they were really just following Jesus' model and example of teaching in the temple courts. But imagine the buzz, if you can place yourself back in time to this point, imagine the buzz when they went home and they discussed what Peter had just been teaching. Peter had spent time with Jesus. Peter, he now knew he was a part of the royal priesthood. Imagine what that was actually like when they went home and unpacked that. I, I can't help but think that there was a real stirring built up and then that sort of sense of anticipation, what was God going to do next, was growing as they encouraged one another. This was kind of edge of your seat stuff. God was undoubtedly on the move. This was serious, legitimate, supernatural stuff. And yet one of Jesus' commands to run alongside all of this supernatural action was this very earthly, practical thing to eat together. See, breaking of bread was actually a colloquial term at the time that meant coming together to eat a meal in the evening. Another term that was knocked about at that time was also table fellowship. And table fellowship, it was a place in which honor and respect were bestowed upon our friends when they came around our table with us. Typically, it lasted three to four hours, which culminated then in the breaking of bread, where they more or less reenacted the Lord's Supper. Eating is an earthly necessity, but something supernatural happened when they came together in their homes in the early church to put Jesus in his rightful place and remind themselves of his lordship. In some ways, I can't help but think it's so unextraordinary that only heaven could really have inspired this model for dynamic life-changing relationships to be forged, you know? And so in the New Testament church, there quickly became a community that were formed in the ways of Jesus. Remember, through the breaking of bread, they served, they lived in the presence of God, they preferred others, and they were one. And this really subtle yet beautiful thing about this was that they they inevitably ended up being a reflection of the kingdom of heaven right there, just in their everydayness, you know. That's probably not even a word. <laughs> but what we must take from this is that kingdom growth runs totally in parallel with the growth of spiritual relationships. So as we all grow deeper together, the kingdom will grow as well. And as I've thought on this term koinonia in the Greek, the strongest thing that I can really identify this with is um, when I've been on any short-term mission trips. Those of you who have had the privilege of doing something like that, you might identify with, with what I'm talking about here. But 
when you go away with a team, you know, and you think you're going to change the world, what usually happens is you come home changed. There's this shared vision and this oneness of heart when you share experiences that shift you completely out of your comfort zone. My first ever short-term mission trip was to Romania. I was 18 and as naive as they come, you know, and we arrived in, in, in Bucharest and our luggage did not. <laughs> None of us being 18 were prepared for this in any way. And we literally had nothing with us bar our hand luggage, which maybe had some um, money and, you know, because you, you would bring your Bible, you know, when you were going somewhere like that, you know, and a few snacks, but we literally had nothing else. We weren't well-traveled enough to prepare for such eventualities, let me tell you. Now I know to pack about a week's worth of clothes in my hand luggage. But um, I think, if I remember right, I think it was actually five days before we got our suitcases. But what we did get, when we didn't get our luggage, but what we did get was this really beautiful knitting together of our hearts. We had this shared vision and we were completely pushed out of our comfort zone. We laughed, we got emotional, we were stretched and we faced the unexpected and we grew deep very quickly. Very quickly indeed, because we had koinonia and our hearts were knit together in this shared experience. And actually, as I've been thinking about this, there's something really beautifully profound happened with it because some people that come with us who weren't Christians, June's son being one of them. And um, do you know something? <coughs> Those who had come who weren't Christians, they felt and experience the reality of God on that trip. We all would have come together to pray, and those people who weren't Christians and didn't believe in God prayed. They prayed to a God that they didn't believe in. And I can't help but think that it's because we all had koinonia. Minds and hearts were opened in that particular context in a way that just wouldn't have happened here. And those type of experiences, they grow your mind and they challenge your heart. Now, I'm not saying that a group of 18-year-olds in Romania were as effective and far-reaching as the early church 2,000 years ago. But what I saw on that trip, it taught me something really deep about the things of how the Spirit of God wants the kingdom to, to really look and operate. You see, we can't follow Jesus alone. We can't do it. We need to be in Koinonia. We will become so much more limited by Sunday mornings if that's just what we think it is. And I think this is the kind of devotion that Luke's telling us about here, this deep partnership in the gospel, the koinonia, the fellowship, the power of one-mindedness and then participation. God's intention is to knit us together in his body in really deep community. We are to be marked by this proactive, intentional pouring out of ourselves for one another. And this has to be more than just a Sunday. And, you know, I, I want to encourage you guys because I stand here. There's so much goes on here that is not just a Sunday morning. So this is happening already, you know. But this is why we need the table. If you remember, in the table in Exodus 25 was in the presence of Yahweh. The table in the Last Supper was in the presence of Jesus. And the table in Acts was in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is still the case for us now. And what is so intentional and crucial about gathering around the table is that it draws us together. It's a place that unifies and provokes conversation. I wanted to take a wee second and show you this photograph. I was actually a wee bit hesitant about this photograph, honestly, when I, when I first found it, because I thought it looked lovely, but I thought it put that kind of Pinterest pressure on people, you know. Um, but let me tell you, we talked about, if you get fairy lights, it takes your meal to a whole new level. Right, so fairy life just ramps it all up a whole other notch. But, so I'm going to tell you something about ourselves that's um, 
a wee bit <laughs> shameful, but hopefully it'll make some people feel a wee bit better. But um, when we, Carla <laughs> Norman know what this is already. I've already shared this top tip with them. When we have people come round our house, we have an island in the middle of our kitchen. And I don't know what anybody else's house is like, but the end of our island is kind of no man's land for, you know, the, you know something that needs fixed or, or you know, like a lip balm or, or some letters that you're going to get to, you know, this junk, right? When we have people come into our house, we get our wash basket <laughs> and we literally scoop into our wash basket. So this happened in September and <laughs> I'm actually ashamed of myself here. It also happened in November, the second layer of junk went into the wash basket. It happened in December because we had more people coming around to the house. It took us from September to January to get to about six layers of end of the island junk sorted out. But that's a wee top tip. If somebody's coming to your house, don't feel the pressure that your house has to be perfect. <laughs> but actually, we have three kids. They're six and, and below. You know, If you're going to come to our house, it, it's not going to be perfect. I'm actually totally fine with that, you know. So just so that you know, if you ever get an invitation around our house for lunch, it's likely going to be a mess. Um, <laughs> but I did take a even heart in this photograph because if you can see very closely there, they're actually just serving people burgers. That's it, just burgers. But the fairy lights, I'm telling you, that is the key to the whole new level, right? <coughs> but I'm sure we can all agree that we live in such a fast-paced world, don't we? With technology, careers, pressures, and this almost constant state of distraction and those things separate us and they polarize us the table is this physical foundation around which we can discuss examine and re-establish truth and love if ever we need to come around the table it's now if ever our kids need to come around the table with all of this masquerading truth that's out there it's now because that is when we make room for Jesus and he's there in our midst because when two or three are gathered in his name, he'll be with them. That's when we reestablish truth. Oh my goodness, our kids need that, don't they? So the table and the breaking of bread, because they're inextricably linked, they are to be a place of, here we go again, to be a place of connection. For those who are maybe new to church, or for those who don't yet know Jesus, the table can be this place of re-establishing connection and gaining a sense of belonging. When you get to know people, it's easier to walk into the room, isn't it? When you invite people and let koinonia happen, they can become connected. The next thing that, that I think that the table is, is a place of... Hey, Johnny, can you just take over? <laughs> Go back one. It's a place of blessing. I'll just read, okay. Uh, it's a place of blessing because you know, we're included. We are the royal priesthood. We have access to the holy of holies. And not only that, but he lives in us. So when you come around the table, it's the place to actually really count your blessings and realize how blessed we are. The next one is that coming around the table, it can be a place of brokenness because we know that Paul tells us to examine our hearts before we eat at the table. And I feel that when we come around the table together in Koinonia, but also when we come around the table to remember what Jesus done, we can take off our masks, you know, these sort of Christian masks that we all can put on, you know, that everything's fine and, you know, I've got it all together. But we can actually just own some of the stuff that's going on in our hearts and then sort it out. And the next point is that um, <clears throat> coming around the table and breaking a bread together is a place of rest. 
we're all so busy, aren't we? We're kind of operating in this constant state of tired. I don't, I don't know about you, but I am at times, you know. And for me, it's a place to just sit in God's presence in the silence of his love and <coughs> find rest for our souls. And the final point that I wanted to bring out about the table and the breaking of bread is that it's a place of servitude. It's that place where the rubber hits the road of missional living that we like to talk about, but it actually has to happen because Jesus did it regularly. It was a demonstration of the kingdom of God breaking in, and we are to partner in that if we want to see growth in the kingdom. So today, I just want to offer you this question just before Al comes and we take communion together. Yeah, we are really not getting on, sure we're not. Here it is. Here's the question. Who do you need to invite over for a meal, to bless, to love, and to serve? Who can you invite into Koinonia and to witness the kingdom of God break out in and break out with? Amen. Thank you, Bruna. That was great. Why don't we just show our appreciation for all the work that Bruna put into that? Thank you, Bruna. Uh, the, the band will come. Why don't we just stand our feet for a moment? We're just going to take communion this morning as we finish. Um, so many so many layers for us to be thinking about that Bruna has helped us understand just the richness of this uh, great feast, which is the breaking of bread. And um, I just want to encourage you. Um, There's so much about uh, rituals and routines that actually form who we are. The problem is sometimes the ritual and the routine has has only ever been a ritual and routine. We've never actually caught the heart and spur of it, which is why we need to teach it. But one, once we teach it, we get an understanding in our spirits of why and what this is. The habit of coming back and orientating ourselves around the table, which reminds us of the broken body of Jesus and the blood that he shed, it actually starts to form who we become. It starts to form our understanding of who we are and the ways of Jesus that we're walking in. And so we want to encourage you as we do it together on Sundays, but as Brona has really kind of powerfully brought out, as you do it in your meals together, as you open up your home, just make space for the Spirit to come. It doesn't mean you have to break into a meeting there and then, but you can leave space for the Spirit just to speak, and let's, let's be those type of people. So I'm going to pray, and then as the guys just lead us in the song, just start to come, take communion, take it back to your seats if you want. I think there's two tables at the front, and I think maybe one at the back as well. And uh, let's, um, let's partake of this table, this great feast that we've been reminded so beautifully of this morning. So, Lord, we just thank you that on the night that you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it, and you said to us, and you said to us again today, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And Lord, we thank you that in the same way you took the cup and you said, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is shared for you. Um, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we show forth the Lord's death. We're reminded, Jesus, of who you were and how you lived and how you died. The kind of person that you were, that you invite us to become. And Lord, we do this in remembrance of you. Help it to be more than an act, but help it to form us into Christ-likeness today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As, we, as the guys sing, just come and take, come and take communion together.